If you would, grab your Bibles, please, or if you have a digital one, turn on your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 7, is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, what we're doing is going verse by verse through this book of the Bible. We're about halfway through uh, our sermon series, and this sermon series couples with a devotional guide. You'll see many of you walking around this morning having yours. <clears throat> and so if uh, it, just know that's available. If you're here this morning, you're like, I didn't even know there was a devotional guide. How do I get one? You can go to the church website, and you can download a copy copy of it. The way it works is that on a Sunday, we'll take a passage, and then during the following week, you work on the next passage, and we just kind of skip back and forth through the Gospel of John. You spending time with Jesus on your own during the week, and then we come in and covering a passage here together. So what we're doing here, though, is the, the big idea is we're covering two questions. The first question is right here on the wall. Who is Jesus? And the second is, what does he want from my life? Those are the two big questions. And they're important because you know as, as a church, we often talk about our mission. Our mission is articulated in six words. We want to help people find and follow Jesus. That's who we are. That's what we do. Well, if we're going to live that out both in our own lives as well as help others, we need to know who Jesus is and we need to be able to articulate him. And one of the things that I've just been praying that as we've been going through this book of the Bible and as you're learning more about who Jesus is, my prayer has been that you're falling in love with Jesus more and more, and the role that he plays in your life. I hope that's happening. So we're going to be this morning in John chapter 7, verse 53. Now, in your devotional guide last week, you read through John 7, and what you learned about and read was Jesus was in Jerusalem, and there's the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three pilgrimage feasts for the Jewish people. And the people would come, thousands of them, and they would live in booths there, and they would be there in Jerusalem. It was a week-long festival with day number eight, this big culmination and throughout that whole time, there's all this debate about Jesus. You know, who, who is he and, and what's he teaching and, and who is this guy? I mean, they're trying to figure Jesus out. There was controversy. There was all kinds of conversation going on. Well, the festival's over. Everybody's gone home. And Jesus, though, with his disciples, remains in Jerusalem, which brings us to chapter 7, verse 53. Now, if you have your Bibles and you're looking there, you will see a huge, big announcement. My Bible says something like this. The earliest manuscripts of the Bible do not have John chapter 7, verse 53, to John chapter 8, verse 11, our text for this morning. So what's going on with this? So, so here's a passage. It's in my Bible, but should it be? It can raise some questions. I mean, can I trust this? Is this something that we should be spending time on a Sunday morning looking at? So I want to give you a little bit of background to these 12 verses. These 12 verses uh, were not originally in the Gospel of John. While we don't have the autograph, meaning the first original copy, we do have very, very early copies, even within 25 years of the, of the writing of John, and we have many, many copies. Well, in those earliest copies, this, these 12 verses are not there. It goes from John chapter 7, verse 52, and it jumps to John chapter 8, verse 12. So what's going on here? Well, scholars that have researched this and studied this at length have determined that while it wasn't a part of John originally, it was historical, that it actually was real, that this happened. Now, why do they say that? Let me give you some reasons why most people, most scholars hold that this event really happened and is worth looking at here this morning. First, in this account, no major doctrines come into a question. This is important. So it syncs well with everything else in the Bible. Second, and very similar, this account does not contradict anything in the Bible. Everything that we read here seems like something that Jesus would do, and it also, the points and the principles outlined here line up with everything else in the Bible. 
But there's more. If you look at early church history, there are written records. They're not biblical, but there's early records. And in those early records from early church leaders, they talk about this event. They talk about it actually a lot, like it really happened. So again, while it wasn't originally in John, it was an event that was well-known, talked about, and it was talked about in churches, which is my final piece of evidence, is that this is an account that for hundreds of years the Holy Spirit has used in the lives of individuals and churches and in the whole Christian movement to edify the church. This is a passage that is very loved. It's one that people have have, uh, referred to. It's one that we really learn more about who Jesus is. And what I love about this passage especially is that as we learn about Jesus in action in this passage, what we see so clearly is the heart of Jesus. And this is important. So we're going to jump into John chapter 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11, and unpack this here this morning. So let's jump in. And here's how it begins in John chapter 7, verse 53. It says simply, then all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So you have this just kind of a, a, a routine verse, if you will, and it gives some action. So what would happen is Jesus would, would spend time in the city of Jerusalem, but he didn't have a home there, a residence. So what he would typically do is he would leave in the evening and go up to the Mount of Olives where he would camp out at night. The next day, go back into the city. So you'll see a picture on your left. That's what the Mount of Olives looks like from Jerusalem. The valley there is called the Kidron Valley. He would go up and down that hill to that location. We also know from Luke chapter 21 that Jesus would do this thing. It confirms what we just read about here. In Mark chapter 11, we read something interesting, that Jesus not only would camp at the Mount of Olives, but many times he would also keep going to the backside of the Mount of Olives. So you'll see the map there. He would keep going east to Bethany. And in Bethany was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That might ring a bell uh, from a a story that we're going to look at later on in the Gospel of John. And so you have this account. Jesus would stay at, at their house on occasion. Either way, this was his pattern. He would be in the city during the day, go up camp, and then come back the next day. Verse 2, let's keep going. At dawn, so Jesus is up early, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts. So he's back in Jerusalem where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, that means the Old Testament, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So let's get the lay of the land here in terms of what's going on. You have Jesus, it's sunrise, he's got a crowd around him, he's teaching this group of Jewish people, when all of a sudden, interrupting this whole scene, is a bunch of religious leaders, and they grab, they have this woman caught in adultery, and they shove her to the front. She is completely exposed, she's completely vulnerable and ashamed. Many a hold, and it was shared even between services, that she wasn't even dressed I mean, this is how they were treating her. And they throw her in front of the crowd to make a scene in order, in this case, to make a point. And as far as she knows, because of what the Old Testament says, she's going to die in a few minutes. That she will not live past this moment. And so again, here she is, guilty and exposed. Now I want to share with you, and I'm going to preface this as this is my opinion, but it's one that a lot of scholars agree with, and and, and, and so maybe true, but I'll let you decide. I think that this was a complete setup. That the whole situation was set up by the religious leaders. And here's why I say it. 
So imagine court of law, I'll play the attorney, and I'll give you my evidence and why I think this is a setup. Number one reason is this, is that the sexual act of adultery didn't happen in public, probably, and it didn't happen at the temple. It probably happened in somebody's private home, which meant that the religious leaders had to go leave and go get her to go witness what would happen and to expose her and to bring her back. So my question is, and what often is asked is, how did they know? How did they know when it was going to happen, and how did they know where it was going to happen? if it wasn't a trap. Number two, imagine they did know. Imagine they knew when it was going to happen and where it was going to take place. The Old Testament required, and these guys knew this, the Old Testament required that they go and stop it before it happened. They apparently didn't do that. They're violating the Old Testament themselves. Number three, if it wasn't a setup, it is highly unlikely that the religious leaders would have gotten up so early to go catch one woman in a city the size of Jerusalem in adultery. Why did they care? Why did they care that much? And even to make a scene as they were making with Jesus and the crowd. And number four, and probably what's most compelling and often brought up, is this. Who's missing? The man. Last time we checked, adultery is a team sport, right? This is, this is, there's two of them there. And so why did they just grab the woman? Why did they leave the man? Why did they let him go, apparently? They only grabbed her to shame her and expose her and to use her. And so they drag her in front. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, adultery is a capital offense. It's a capital offense for both the man and the woman. So once again, they're violating the Old Testament by only bringing in the woman. Finally, we got some music going here. All right. Finally, my fifth piece of evidence is this, that these guys, they didn't need Jesus in any of this. They didn't need his opinion. They're the religious leaders. They're the Pharisees. They're the scribes. And if they did want his opinion, they didn't have to do it that way. They could have waited. They could have, they could have waited until Jesus was done with the crowd. They, they could have privately to the side said, hey, Jesus, we want to talk with you about something. We want your opinion on something. They didn't do that, did they? They waited for prime time. They waited for max size of people. They, they waited for the moment that they could make this dramatic entrance and shove this woman fully exposed and for this crowd of people for maximum effect. Again, to shame and humiliate her. But remember, she's just a tool. None of this is about her. This is about Jesus. And they want to they they uh, um, expose him. They want to trap him. They want to discredit him. This is what they're trying to do. So what's the trap? Here's the trap, and here's a verse from Leviticus. I want you to see this. This is one of a few that teach the exact same thing. It says that if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both, there's the key word, the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. It says it again in Deuteronomy. These guys are violating their own law that they knew full well. So here's the trap. The trap is this, that if, if Jesus says, no, no, I'm not going along with you guys. I'm not, I'm not playing this game. I'm not holding her accountable. I'm not going to support the capital punishment for this woman. Then the Jews immediately would have jumped in and said, aha, you call yourself a Jewish person. You call yourself a rabbi. You are completely discredited in front of all these other Jewish people that you violate the Old Testament, that you don't believe the Bible. We discredit you in front of everybody. That's one option Jesus could have done, and that was the outcome they would have pursued. But what if Jesus agreed with them and said, okay, fine, 
This woman is guilty. You caught her in the act of adultery. She deserves to die. To support the Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, she's, you know, we'll kill her. Follow that through. Well, what they would have said then is, well, ha, you, wait a minute, you're violating Roman law. Because Roman law says that a Jewish person, for a religious reason, can't execute someone. Fast forward to Jesus' own death. They had to go to Pilate to get that one covered. You can't do that. And so I, at least how I imagine it, there was probably some Roman guards they already kind of gathered that were off to the side just waiting. Whichever option Jesus picks, he's stuck. Anger the Jews, get arrested, and anger the Romans. It, it, that was the trap. This is the one that, this is what they laid up. This is what they're trying to accomplish. So let's see what Jesus does. Verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. What a powerful scene. These religious leaders, oldest to youngest, one at a time, leaving, dropping their stones. Apparently the crowd leaving too. It's just this woman and Jesus. And I want you to catch something else too that's tucked away in the Old Testament that's at play here that's going on. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, don't turn there, as well as in, verse, in chapter 19, it says there that when you're going to do a capital punishment and kill somebody for a crime, there has to be two or three witnesses that see the crime. And here's the key. Those two or three witnesses that see the crime, they have to be the ones to throw the stones first. They have to be the ones to initiate the death process. But why would that be in the Old Testament? Well, the reason it was in the Old Testament was to try to eliminate false charges. Because if the, person, the people who are witnesses, if it was later found out that they were mistaken or they intentionally lied, that those witnesses themselves would then be stoned because they were the ones that did it first. They're the ones that brought the charge. So to bring an accusation like this is a major deal. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they know this. So what they're trying to do is to get Jesus on the hook, that it's all him. That no matter how he answers there, he's going to get arrested. Or they may have even pursued capital punishment on Jesus after they killed the woman. This is what they're trying to accomplish. But Jesus, I mean, you just love this about him and his wisdom. Of course, he just turns the tables on them. He doesn't play the game. He knows exactly what they're saying, highlighting he who without sin cast the first stone. Now, the irony is Jesus was the only one at that scene who had the right to cast a stone. Because he was the only one without sin. But he turns the table and says, how about you? Whoever here is without sin, you cast the first stone. Those guys knew what Jesus was saying. Those guys knew that Jesus was exposing them. Jesus essentially saying, I know as well as you do. This is a setup. I know, I know as well as you do that you violated the Bible over and over and over again to do this to this woman. And I know what you're trying to do to me. And I'm not playing along. Jesus foiling the plans, the guys leaving the scene humiliated. And here's how it finishes up in verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? <clears throat> Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. We love this story, this account, this historical account, because it shows the heart of Jesus. 
It shows the heart of Jesus. Notice that Jesus, he did not, he not, he did not downplay her sin. He, he never said to her, oh, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. It's just a little boo-boo mistake. He, he doesn't do that whatsoever. He treats her sin and her offense seriously, and he extended to her graciously forgiveness and a new start in life. It's a beautiful thing. It's the, called the good news, and it's what we celebrate so often here at New Hope Church. It's what we celebrated with baptisms between the services. And it also highlights that this, this account with this woman is not just something that happened. It's something that happens every day in the lives of men and women, boys and girls all over this world, including here at New Hope Church. Some of you might remember this. In, in June of 1983, so it was a while ago, there was a horrific crime that took place. Carla Faye Tucker and her boyfriend, they, she was 23 years old. She Both were caught up in drugs, and they broke into a Houston home to case it for a future robbery. But while there, there was a couple there, and so grotesquely with a pickaxe and hammer, they murdered this couple in their home. Terrible, horrendous event. And they were arrested, and they were charged eventually with the death penalty. And Carla sat on death row for many years. Well, three months into her prison sentence, out of sheer boredom, she went to a, an event there in the prison. There was a Christian ministry that came in, and they did puppets. Nothing fancy, just some puppet shows, and they began to share about Jesus through puppets. And, and she watched this show, and she was a little intrigued. As she was leaving to go back to her cell, there was a table with Bibles, and she went and she stole one and tucked it away, only to find out later they were free. She didn't have to steal it, but she, nonetheless, she stole the Bible. And she t- took it back to her cell, and there at night, she would open it up, and she would just read about Jesus. And she would read, eventually, this gospel story about who he is. And in her prison cell, she prayed to receive Christ as her Lord and Savior. And, and as she talks about, she says, it was, you know, the moment I did that was the first moment I really, truly understood what I did. It was the first time I really fully got it. I understood the depth of my sin. But at the same time I understood my sin, I also saw so real grace and forgiveness, both equally real, and what Jesus did to cover what I had done. And Carla, I mean, she just was on fire for Jesus. For whatever time she had left, that was her commitment, that was her passion, that was her love, doing ministry from the inside. And she began to love people and and share the gospel with people. The picture there in the middle is kind of humorous because a few years later, maybe about seven, eight years later, she married the prison chaplain. How cool is that? And here they are, husband and wife doing ministry. I don't know how that all worked, but there they are, husband and wife doing ministry in the prison together. And it was good until she heard from the penal system and her execution date was set, February 3rd, 1998. And when this began to come close, it, it created this huge sensation. Again, some of you might remember this. It wasn't that long ago, 22 years ago. And, 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 and people wondering, like, how do we understand this? Like, how do we understand that she never denied that she did it? She never said it was no big deal. She knew she was guilty. She knew there was consequences for her actions. But we also looked at the situation, and she wasn't the same person. Larry King went down there for his show just about two weeks before she was executed and interviewed her. You might even be able to find the interview online somewhere. And she was bold in her faith about Christ and talked about Jesus over and over again and the difference and the peace that she had. She knew that her execution was coming, and she was executed. 
But she had peace through it all. And Larry kept saying over and over again, like, no, it's not that easy. No, 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 there's got to be something more. And she said, there is no more. Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed me. I know I'm a sinner, but I know forgiveness is so real. And on February 3rd, she was executed. And I share that story because her story is a lot like the woman caught in adultery. It's a lot like her story, too. And let's be honest, it's a lot like your story. And it's my story. Now, I know the details might be different, but our stories are all the same. See, it isn't about, as we read this account, it's not just about something that happened in history, and it did, but it's about something that happens every single day. That Jesus comes and changes lives. And we just, I just want to call this out this morning, just recognizing that we here at New Hope Church, you might be like, you talk about sin all the time. And we do. And the reason is not so that you walk away here like crawling out the door to your car feeling bad about yourself. But what I do hope is that you leave here recognizing you're needy. That you need him. See, we are not a church of just good people and religious people and upright people and moral people. That's not what we're about. Fundamentally, we are a church of forgiven people. That's who we are. We're the woman caught in adultery. And we can try to clean our story up. And we can try to say, well, I never did that. And maybe you haven't. But it's still our sin, and it's still our story. And it's still our need for a Savior. And again, that's what we celebrated this morning. So I want to close this morning with a couple of just life applications. And so if you have your bulletin, you may be wondering, like, oh, I have fill-in-the-blanks to do. Like, when do I do them? Now we do them. Very quickly, I just want to highlight these. Just three, just taking this text and applying it to your daily life. Here are just some observations for you to consider as we just think about as we leave from here how this can apply to you. Here's number one. Grace in your life becomes real when your sin becomes admitted. Grace becomes real when you come to terms and you say, I recognize that I am a sinner. I recognize I have violated God's commands. I recognize I've gone my own way. Notice the adulterous woman. She never denied her sin. But it was her guilt that drove her to a place to receive Jesus. Carla Faye Tucker, the exact same thing. And what can happen with you and I is that, just go with me for a moment on this scenario. We come to a moment in our lives where we say yes to Jesus. Maybe you're at church or maybe you're at an event or somebody's talking with you and you just recognize, you know what, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And we pray to receive Christ and it's a wonderful thing. But what happens is you and I have spiritual amnesia and we begin to forget We begin to go through life and we begin to say, I mean, I guess it was real then, but now as I go through life, I kind of forget. But see, if we don't continually recognize our need, we won't search for what Jesus is and what he offers, who he is and what he offers. The more we diminish our sin, the less we think we need his forgiveness. That's the key. See, if we don't think and understand that we're weak, we won't look, look for his strength. If, if we don't think that we are sinners, we won't ever seek a savior. If for you and I, if we don't think we need Jesus, you won't pursue him. And so the key here is to recognize that when my sin becomes admitted, when you, before God, a holy God, just recognize your sin and where it's at, that you're a work in progress, Grace isn't optional. We become desperate for it. We need him. Here's number two. 
And I, I mentioned this because I want to correct a picture that sometimes we can have about who the Lord is. And it's this idea that Jesus does not punish you. He was punished for you. Sometimes we can have a picture of, of God, and maybe it's because of maybe who our father was, or something else we picked up along the way, that God's a mean God, that he's a warring God, that he's, he's out to strike people down, that he's just angry all the time. That's not who he is. When we see the heart of Jesus here, and we see that, yes, of course, sin has consequences, and sin hurts, and it ruins, and it destroys our lives, but just as real as that is who Jesus is and what he accomplished. See, on the cross of Jesus, all, that, all the, the, the punishment for our sins was, was taken out on the Son. It's called propitiation, the fancy word for it. That it all was lavished on him, and he paid that painful price. There's no more punishment for anybody who is in Christ. The punishment has been paid. Yes, sin has consequences. But forgiveness is real because of what Jesus has done. Just here this morning, he died for you. He died for that adulterous woman. He died for me. And there's nobody like Jesus. This is who he is. And finally, number three, as we close this morning. The day will come when we will all stand before Jesus. And maybe one of my favorite moments of this whole account with this woman is, is the Pharisees leave and the scribes leave and the crowds apparently dissipate and go. And it's just Jesus and it's just her. And they have this conversation. And they have this conversation where Jesus begins to restore her. But it highlights that the day is coming when you're going to have that exact same moment where you too will stand before Jesus. And in that moment, you're going to know so clearly who he is and who you are. And, and you're going to know so clearly, for those of you who are followers of Christ, you're going to know so clearly the only reason you're there is because of grace and what he's done in you. And in that moment, you are just going to be able to worship, to, to hear the words on that day from him, well done, good and faithful servant. To hear the words on that day, I do not condemn you. Those are words he spoke to her. But for anybody here who said yes to Jesus, those are your words. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Couldn't be any more clear than this. Therefore, as a result, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we're so good with this verse of adding a footnote. You know, so on the bottom it says, well, I hear that, but yeah, but. I hear that, but if you only knew what I've been through, if you only knew, God, what I've done, well, he does. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This morning, what, what my deep hope has been is that an account like this, and the band, you come up, if you would, please, on an account like this, that you and I would just see so clearly the heart of Jesus and it's a heart that loves you. It's a heart that knows exactly who you are and knows exactly where you've been. But who opens his arms and says, but I love you. I came for you and I died for you on a cross. It's a restorative love. It's a redemptive love. It's not a finger-wagging love. It's not a love with agenda. Our sin is real, but because it's real... We can also hold on so tightly that so is grace and forgiveness. And so what we're going to do here as we close, I'm just going to pray just for a moment, but then we're going to worship 
I just want to encourage you. We're going to stand and just sing with all your heart, how great is our God. How great is our God because of who he is and what he's accomplished in our lives. Sin, death is no more. It is destroyed, conquered because of what Jesus has done. I don't care where you've been and where you're going. In your past, your present, there is forgiveness for you because there's a Savior who loves you. He loves you very, very much. Can we pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, this morning, it has been a day of celebration, not new hope. We're not celebrating that. We're not even celebrating those that were baptized. But we're celebrating you. You're amazing. Lord, you are a, a Savior who left your throne coming to earth. And, and to see this account of this woman completely exposed and shamed and guilty of her sin, and yet you love and you forgive and you restore her. You say, I do not condemn you. Leave your life of sin. Lord, that's what we celebrate this morning, the gospel good news of who you are and what you've accomplished. And I just pray that if there's anybody here this morning that you have never received that gift of Jesus as Lord and Savior, today is the day to do that. That for anybody here, you just simply say, Lord, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I recognize my sin. But I place my trust in you. Thank you for what you accomplished for, for me on the cross. And Lord, now we sing to you how great you are because you are great. We love you as your people and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you stand please? Let's sing out together. Yeah.